Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the New Statesman's Hidden Histories podcast and our new series, the Great Forgetting, Women Writers Before Austin. Episode 3, Sociable Spaces. In 1840, Charlotte Bronte, later to publish novels under a male name, Cara Bell, nostalgically recalled poring over a copy of the Ladies' Magazine, wishing she was writing 40 or 50 years ago when the Ladies' Magazine was flourishing like a green bay tree. From the magazine's first issue in 1770 to its eventual demise 60 years and 800 issues later, what did it mean for literary culture to have a magazine written by and for women? And who were its anonymous, often amateur, contributors? In this episode, we'll be talking about sociable spaces where 18th century women could come together and discuss education, society, politics and, well, pretty much anything else deemed suitable for polite society. We'll also look at female debating societies, which considered Salic law capital punishment and the perennial question of women's status. I'm joined by Dr. Jenny Batchelor of the University of Kent, and back again is Sophie Colombo from Cardiff. Jenny, I know you've been doing a lot of work on the ladies' magazine specifically, so that seems like a good place to start. What is it and what's its importance? Well, its importance is, well, it has several different aspects. First of all, as you've indicated, it's partly to do with its incredible longevity. The magazine periodicals themselves are new media in the 18th century and, um, you know, really starting as early actually as the the, the sort of the mid-1690s when the very first women's periodical that's specifically marketed towards a female audience comes around. It's called the Ladies' Mercury. It's a very odd sort of Q&A kind of format. And there are several... um, subsequent periodicals and magazines that specifically target female audiences that come along in its wake through some relatively well-known examples such as Eliza Haywood's Female Spectator for instance in the 1740s but generally really not until the ladies magazine in 1770 does the magazine format in its sort of recognizably modern form come along and by its recognizably modern form I mean that what will be familiar to any listeners of this today, I'm talking about magazines that are very diverse in content, often conveying completely contradictory messages to their readers, telling you on the one hand that fashion doesn't matter, it's really all about your mind and your character is defined by what you know rather than what you wear, next to a wonderful fashion plate telling you precisely what you should be wearing. So this format, this this emerges in 1770 and what what makes, to go back to your original question, what makes the ladies' magazine so very important is that it sees off so many rivals. It succeeds where so many of its predecessors had failed and secures a, a wonderful readership for about 62 years. Um, and I think its secondary importance and the reason why it had such a wonderfully long um, run was because it cultivated a a very very strong community of reader contributors as you indicated much of the content much of its original content was actually written by its readers who in the main were not actually paid it seems for what they wrote for the magazine 
And this meant that readers had a, had a particular stake in the magazine. They had a kind of investment in the magazine, which is very different from the sort of simple kind of consumer model of I buy something, I read it, I may talk to my friends about it, but that's it. They, they actually, it was their magazine. It belonged to them. And I think that sort of, that was very much part of its success and partly why it survived for such a very long period of time. I really like this idea of it being new media. And also basically because it was running on what is very now very fashionable to call UGC, user-generated content. So yes. this idea that now, you know, you send in your photos of what your sunset and then people, that fundamentally done, not only because people like to feel involved, hence why, you know, newspapers have always covered school nativity plays because everyone wants to see, oh, look, there's my child. Yes, um, but also that it's 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 very it's a very cheap way of obtaining content. It's how the Huffington Post now you know, manages its blog platform. Is people want to have their stuff on there, and also it's a lot you know less expensive than running everything by paid contributors. But the, I presume that this must have got them into trouble sometimes. <laughs> well, yes, it did get them, it did get them into trouble sometimes. I mean, in in the main, it seems that authors were actually fairly happy to provide content for the magazine. Um, free of charge and there aren't many people who gripe about this although it, the, the, the tide of opinion certainly and interestingly changes after around 1800 when uh, the professional the, the prospect of becoming a professional journalist for instance becomes really a reality for the first time and therefore paid writers for periodicals become incredibly sniffy about these very amateurish publications like the ladies magazine where people are producing content free of charge but um of course one of the one of one of the ways in which the magazine could get into trouble was that it could um, simply lift content from other sources as well so whilst i've placed a lot of emphasis on reader contributors some of its content was also well, I don't like to use the P word, so I'm not going to say plagiarism. I'm going to say repurposed from other sources, um, often because the identities of the authors were not known. I think um, items and articles could be repurposed without much fear that the, the original source material or the original author would ever find out about it. So there is some repurposed, remediated content, should we say. And did it magazine. make stars? You know, was, was there a, a Richard Littlejohn of the Ladies' Magazine or, a, you know, a, a Melanie Phillips? There are there there, there are some. I'm not sure they, those people would see themselves in the same. Uh, lineage but there are certainly some so for instance some uh, writers who, who became very famous outside the magazine's pages began their careers in it and these weren't just women I'm thinking about people like George Crabbe who was a very important and influential uh, Georgic poet of the period first um, wrote poems for the ladies magazine because in its initial years it ran a monthly poetry prize and he won several of those prizes so you find George Crabbe's poetry under various pseudonyms in the magazine E. Bark, his surname backwards, uh, G.C. or C. But there are others too, much later on, Mary Russell Mitford, who's well known as somebody who occupied the, the, the same um, part of the world as Jane Austen and knew the Austen family. Mary Russell Mitford's Our Village was first serialised in the ladies' magazine. And there are many other Gothic novelists, people who are perhaps not very well known today, but wrote incredibly popular novels at the time, like Mrs. Kendall, who wrote a novel called Derwent Priory that was first published in the ladies' magazine, went on to write several Gothic novels. I love that. It's the most 18th century novel name ever, isn't it? Derwent Priory. It could only be an 18th century novel. Um, now, because I'm a kind of base human being, how much of it was, was garlanded with kind of, you know, religious and moral sensibilities? Or, you know, did it have, I guess it didn't have sex tips for girls, but did it ever address things like that? Uh, not exactly sex tips for girls. I mean, historically, the, 
people have tended to think about the ladies magazine i think largely because most people haven't actually read it it's such a huge archive it takes quite a while to get through historically it's tended to be seen as as perhaps a kind of conduct book by another name you know telling good girls how to behave how to get a good husband once you are married how to keep your husband which is not about sex it's about laying your table properly or wearing the right clothes and saying the right thing that kind of thing um but in fact actually i think partly you know what i was referring to before about the kind of the dynamism of the periodical format the fact that the miscellany not only promotes but actively in a way kind of encourages disagreement and disparity nothing is ever set in stone you say something in the magazine it can always be challenged in the next issue by another reader partly because of that it's actually very difficult i think to to say that the magazine has any kind of message yes it has lots of moral content yes it it doesn't uh, advocate that um that that it doesn't particularly promote particular sexual activities for women or, or, or in, in other cases, sort of advocate against them. It's a, much, it's a much more complex and finely calibrated periodical than that. I mean, one thing that needs to be said, I guess, is that its publisher, George Robinson, was actually um, a, a supporter of radical writers of the time. His publishing firm, for instance, was fined quite heavily for distributing Thomas Paine's Rights of Man in the, in the, seven, in the 1790s. And he was a friend to writers like William Godwin, who was married to Mary Wollstonecraft and, and supported Elizabeth Inchbold and other people. So there is, a, there is a real place and a space for quite actually quite politically, not necessarily inflammatory, but certainly provocative content in the magazine. It's not a safe space mm. in, in, in that way. It's much more dynamic than that. Well, that makes me think, I'm bringing you, Sophie, on this. Uh, how what did it mean to have that kind of forum for discussion, uh, you know, kind of letter writing culture, kind of essayist culture, for women writers outside, you know, outside of the pages of the magazine itself? Um, I think incredibly important. I mean, one thing that we've talked about in previous podcasts is this idea that authorship for women is ideologically and culturally a lot more fraught in the 18th century than authorship for men, which has its own issues, but, um, but they're very different issues. Um, the idea of professional publication... Um, is has a certain has to be treated carefully as a female writer, and I think a forum like the Ladies Magazine, because it is amateur, because it is um, kind of piecemeal in a way, um, and because of the anonymity and pseudonymity involved with a lot of the contributions, provides this freedom. I think freedom in anonymity in a kind of um, more ethereal form. Um, so yeah, I think incredibly. Um, important as a kind of testing ground. And are there subjects that it particularly comes back to a lot of the time, Jenny? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it's, it's, I mean, there are certain kind of genres that it comes back to all the time and certain kinds of subjects. One of the perennial themes that runs through the entirety of the magazine's run is the very important and politically very complicated question of female education. That's absolutely fundamental to its remit. You know, what, what is it that we, we, we want and culturally, politically, we need women to know? And that's a very hot issue in the magazine throughout its entire run. It also refers to much more de- mundane domestic matters of the kind I've been referring to. I mean, it promised from its very first issue that it would it sort of branded itself as something that because it's a new media, because it's a periodical publication and therefore comes out monthly, it can be a great purveyor of fashion, particularly to the provinces. It can get out to places where where, you know, um, metropolitan ideas and, and news, um, you know, can, can, can access more of the country through this particular medium. So it, it has a lot about it has a lot about those sort of domestic concerns. But as I said earlier, you know, politics does find a place in it. It's able, again, precisely because it's a periodical form, it's able to react to news events. So the French Revolution gets a lot of coverage. Before that, the Gordon Rights in London, um, major 
um, trials, for instance, are covered. So, for instance, the Duchess of Kingston's bigamy trial, uh, a sort of pre-Ripper awful set of assaults on women um, that were committed by uh, a man who they com was commonly known as the monster gets covered in the, in the periodical. I mean, it, it is... It is so diverse, it's so rich. There's really not a single kind, there isn't really not a single subject I can think of that isn't in one shape or other actually covered in the magazine. Well, can we take a moment to just to go down a small, maybe cul-de-sac and, and dwell on this idea of fashion? Because that's mm. fascinating. So the 18th century, the traditional kind of economic look at it is about, you know, this is the age of mass production, this is the Industrial Revolution, this is for the first time people could have, you know, maybe more than one set of clothes, right? Very fundamentally yes. that fashion becomes something that, it becomes almost it dribbles down to the, the middle class, certainly. Mm. Um, this is, the, uh, and, the, and perhaps neither of you can answer this, and this is an unfair question to spring on you. There is that very sharp handbrake turn in women's fashion. So throughout the 18th century, things are getting bigger and bigger, you're getting massive panniers, people have to go through doors sideways, yes. massive <laughs> you know wigs with galleons in, all that kind of stuff. And then you get to the Regency period, and suddenly... Within a couple of years, people are wearing, you know, muslin that's so thin that they're sponging themselves down to make it stick to them. Mm. And you get the kind of, you know, the dresses that people will be familiar with from Pride and Prejudice kind of adaptations, those kind of empire line things. That's very quick in the history of fashion for something to, to go that completely. Was that, mm. were things like magazines involved in that? How did that happen? Yeah, no, they're absolutely involved in it. They're involved in it in terms of um, not so much in... in it's very hard sometimes to, to, to actually point down the chicken and egg in these kind of situations. You know, what comes first? Does, 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 does a trend happen and then it's followed? Or, or, or is it the magazine that's, that's actually setting these trends? My sense about the ladies' magazine, certainly, is that actually what it's doing is it's reflecting trends that it's seeing. And in particular, um, the ladies' magazine and also other of its sort of competitors in the early 19th century, like La Belle, La Belle Assemblée and the Ladies' Monthly Museum, are actually getting a lot of their sartorial news, as it were, from France, which is in fact where a lot of those sweeping changes that you're talking about are coming from in light of the revolution, where that kind of excess, I mean, all kinds of excess, whether it's economic um, uh, or, or, or fashion, you know, are, are suddenly become beyond the pale and unjustifiable in this very different world that all of a sudden... Europe is plunged into sort of after the storming of the Bastille. Well, we're going to come to that in the next episode about the kind of how frightening it was to have 300 miles away the French Revolution happening. But for the moment, Sophie, you mentioned when we were preparing for this episode, this idea of La Belle Assemblée, this idea of, of all women's debating societies, which seem to have kind of sprung up in what, the 1770s, you start seeing the first ones, and then they flower for a bit and then they die again. What drove that dynamic? Yeah, really, really fascinating phenomenon, this. And I think one of the ways in which we have to look for an exception to a rule, look for the kind of cracks in the generalisations that we make about this period. Um, um, it's easy to say that throughout the 18th century, there are ways in which women are um, ideologically, culturally discouraged from speaking in public. Obviously, you know, a woman can't be a member of parliament, which is the sort of masculine sphere of public speaking par excellence. You have these conduct books, which sort of um, essentially tell them the best thing they can do is really be quiet in conversation when, it, when they, these conduct books give tips on conversation. Um, but there's always the exception to the rule. And as you just said, Helen, around the 1770s, this phenomenon kind of emerges of female debating societies now, debating societies um, 
had always, you know, had been around since uh, for a good 20, 30 years, mainly male debating societies, and sometimes, um, you know, having having women involved in that, certainly from the early 1770s. But around 1780, for a very, very brief time, for really very little over a year, you get this phenomenon of female only. Now, men could attend to watch these debates, but only women were allowed to speak. I would um, sort of like them to bring that back now. <laughs> Do you not think? I yeah. just think that would be quite fun. Um, you've, uh, you, you, hand, you sent me over some slides, which I'm now going to not... Although Jenny doesn't like to use the P word, I am going to plagiarise them, just to give people an idea <laughs> of, of some of the questions that were asked. So uh, here are examples from 1778 and 1789. Whether capital punishments are not too frequently infi- inflicted in this country... Do female deviations from chastity in general originate in the artifice of the men or the levity of the women? (laughs) Whether the late destruction of the Bastille and the spirited conduct of the French do not prove that the general opinion of their being possessed of a slavish disposition was founded in national prejudice? And finally, which I bet you could still get a, a debate on now... Was women created inferior, equal, or superior to man? Yes. Mm. Um, I think that's. I think it's really interesting that actually so many of the debates uh, from what you sent me were about actually specifically concerned with women's right to Absolutely. speak. You know, this was a kind of, you know, the, the very foundation of the speaking itself seems so so tenuous. Mm-hmm. The idea of women having an opinion. There's a great anecdote you talk about of someone standing up to talk from the balcony and then a, a group of leery blokes <laughs> saying, do you plan to entertain us all night? Yeah. And she says, no, I'm, I'm nearly finished, actually. Yeah. And just completely, <laughs> completely doesn't get the, the joke that they were trying to yeah. do, which then everyone then thinks is quite gallant and going, yes. oh, very well very done. Good, well, I suppose. But um, presumably, as we've, you know... Uh, we've we've long written about in the kind of history of, of women's entry into public life, it must have been quite threatening to people. Yes. I think one thing it's important to note, um, Mary Thale, who is uh, one of the scholars who's written most on this, points out that proportionately all female debating societies discussed questions about women in public life far, far more frequently than mm. mixed sex or male only societies so what you've not what you've got is not only this forum in which women can come together and speak in public but they are speaking about women speaking in public you know it's an area where they can consider that where they can debate it where they can make arguments for and also against um, their own ability to speak Mm. Um, I find that so fascinating because I just um, Nan Sloan, who runs the Labour Women's Network, has just published a dictionary of political quotations by women, and she asked me to write a foreword for it. And one of the reasons she said that she did it is she said that when you get women's quotations in general books, they are you know they are overwhelmingly about what it's like to be a woman. So yeah. it's your mm-hmm. Margaret Thatcher on mm-hmm. well I you know I might have a handbag, but I know yeah. a lot about Europe. Um, and actually, what you don't get is women's expertise on general subjects. And I feel that very strongly, having been involved with kind of feminist writing for the last couple of years is that it's been brilliant for making you know for getting a lot of women writing and a lot of women involved in politics but almost in a way we've kind of created a kind of a ghetto for ourselves because actually you know it's harder you know we're still are we still getting are we still breaking through to have more female economists you know more women are writing about about migration and actually it can become a kind of self-limiting platform that you've made for yourself but you can't get off it and get out into the into the wider world it's a perennial question um certainly in terms of literary history whether we should talk about women's writing and you know there's an irony here because this whole series is about women's writing i think there are good things to be said on both sides of the question to be honest um and it's possible that the the same thing might have been said about all female debating societies do they provide a particular space in which it's easier for women to um 
you know, to, to thrive, to be recognized, to be taken on their own terms? Or is it, as you said, that kind of um, siphoning off of women further and further away from the mainstream? Um, in terms of the debating societies, I'm not actually sure that women did have an easier time of it uh, in this allegedly all-female space. You, you mentioned the heckling that happened, and that is a wonderful anecdote. Um, but yeah, there are good things to be to be said on both sides. But, it, but interestingly, there, there's a there's a period of time when the ladies' magazine seems to be actually tracking what's going on in the debating societies, and particularly around the founding of La Belle Assemblée, because as I say, you know, it's it's the ladies' magazine is a periodical that likes to reflect, you know, important cultural events that are taking place, and um, and there's a there's a short period where it actually takes up a subject that is going to be discussed at the Belle Assemblée debating society, which is precisely that question that you posed and really liked about are women naturally inferior to, to men and they, they argue this out within within the magazine's pages and uh, uh, somebody comes in and intervenes in the conversation and says well you know I, this is a very important conversation and I think it's much better that we have it in a magazine than we have it in a debating house and the reason why is because well well, there are several. One is that if you're in a debating house, you have to rehearse, you have to perform, and you have to observe certain kinds of rules and protocols. But in print, behind the veil of anonymity, we can do things differently. We can be freer. And more people can join in the conversation. And then what happens is it becomes a conversation about whether or not men are actually qualified or should be allowed to intervene in that conversation. So a particular Someone guy... Someone would tell Twitter that. Well, so a guy who would have loved Twitter called the impartial combatant. Oh, no. God knows what his... <laughs> Can you imagine what his Twitter handle would be now? Yeah. Um, he he came he comes in and, and and says, well, you know, no woman could have ever been a Newton in this wonderful sort of self-fulfilling fiction. Well, yes, of course, if no women are educated in the way Milton was, no woman could become a Milton, could they? Was his name impartial combatant because he was like, uh, ladies, I'm actually totally objective here because I've got the testicles of objectivity. So let me just <laughs> take a spoke, moment. If he spoke, he would have had exactly that tone of voice. <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly how he comes across. Like I'm not I'm not going to patronise you. I get where you're coming from I see however down. I can see you're all very angry but have you stopped to read some interesting links that I might send you <laughs> indeed and, and and one of the other women in the debate says look, look you have no right to participate in this conversation it says I want to bar the male creatures from the conversation entirely but the ladies magazine I mean we've talked about it as a magazine that targets women readers many of its authors are women but it always had a mixed sex audience it always has mixed sex contributors and one of its particular claims then was that it provides a kind of mixed sex social space in which women were preeminent and dominant but they didn't bar the male creatures right because you know it was very important to the magazine that it I mean commercially it was important I mean you know men had the purse strings but it was important in other ways too that it became a kind of mixed sex social space and it wasn't ghettoized in that kind of way and can we talk for a minute about class because um, you said the ladies magazine was cost six six d as it was six, six pence d, yes. uh, old school um, pre-decimal pence what, what kind of person could afford that? Well, it's in terms of if you if you if you pitch it against its sort of periodical competitors, it is very much at the low end, and it and it presents itself and markets itself as being incredibly cheap and value, and good value for money. So its opening pitch uh, to readers in its first issue is that you get all this wonderful print content. It's going to tell you all this wonderful stuff about politics and fashion and education. You're going to get an embroidery pattern every single month, which you did have for 62 years. And you know, if you went to your haberdashers, you'd pay sixpence just. For for an embroidery pattern and look you're getting for six pence an embroidery pattern and 
60 pages of print content and engravings and a song sheet. If you want Handel's Oratorio, you're going to get that. You can play it on a piano too. So it, it was, I mean, it was incredibly good value and it was able to be good value, it seems largely, as, as you suggested earlier, because it, it, its economic model was one where it was, you know, user-provided content. It did have to raise its price, but only after three decades. In 1800, it raised, it raised its price to a shilling, and that was because that was the point at which readers became so clamorous, as it put it, for coloured fashion plates. So they could really see what was going on across the Channel and in London if they were living in the provinces. That in order to fund that, the monthly fashion plates, which are utterly exquisite, I have to say, in order to fund that, they had to put the price up because they couldn't afford the, the fashion plates. And it was weekly or monthly? It was monthly. So presumably it took a couple of days to get from the printers to... I mean, it, it, this is the hilarious thing, right? We're now in 2016 and we send our magazine to press on a Wednesday <laughs> uh, at noon and it and it kind of often, given the postal service, reaches readers in the north of Scotland on Friday. Yeah. Um, so I imagine the ladies' magazine also maybe took a few... Actually, well, one of those things, ladies' magazine probably was quicker, actually. Probably putting it on the back <laughs> of a really fast post horse was probably well, I mean, that's more the, efficient. I mean, you know, when I say it's new media, it's it's par- partly what makes new media possible is new technologies and the turnpike network, the postal service. I mean, it's, it, the ladies' magazine couldn't have happened without the post because people sent in their contributions from all over the country post paid incidentally they were very very keen that you had to pay your postage the the publishers were absolutely not going to pay the postage for your paltry contributions to its magazine but it was entirely dependent on those kinds of networks which made it possible to to get content and to then print and distribute content really quite rapidly and there is evidence you know that the ladies magazine made it into america and and to other countries too so it traveled you're making me very nostalgic do you remember the concept of self-addressed envelopes yes (laughs) when was the last time you sent a self-addressed envelope I received one for a wedding the other day. They had invited for the RSVP <laughs> card. They very kindly give stamped addressed envelope. To send That's it good. Out. My teenage years were almost entirely dominated by stamped addressed envelopes. But it's just it's <laughs> one of those. But I think that idea about new technologies is is really interesting. Mm. So presumably also that you know some of the the economics of of this about people moving to cities, about more women having independent incomes meant that they could buy the magazine, they could go to debating societies. I suspect so. Yes. I mean. Equally with the debating societies, um, class is a really interesting factor in terms of who went along. I mean, we don't know too much about individuals who went along because they have this habit of blanking out the names of the ladies who spoke. But the scholarship on the subject seems to suggest um, that it was the speakers at these all-female debating meetings were primarily drawn from what we might call the lower middle classes. Um, Mary Thale points towards the fact that um, a lot of the debating topics, perhaps more than we'd expect, are um, interested in discussing whether men should have the right to encroach on female trades, Mm. like millinery, Mm. for example. Um, Again, going back to fashion briefly, you know, uh, fashion retail, which were um, uh, traditionally female occupations, and should men have the right to come in on this? So Thale speculates, perhaps, you know, that points towards a certain demographic of speakers. Um, coming from those trades, wanting to discuss those issues, their livelihoods. That's something I think we'll probably come back to, but I think that's a fascinating tension at the top and bottom end, isn't it, of of female authorship. At the bottom end, you have people who simply don't have the time, they don't have the access, they don't have the education to write. Then you move up to people who perhaps have to write because it's the only way of supporting themselves. And then as you get higher up the social scale, it then becomes very declassé and actually, why would an aristocratic lady sully herself in the public prints, right? So this is a time when... There is a weird pressure at both ends of the income scale for people not to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, we'll come back to that perhaps in the next episode where we're going to talk about some radical women. But for the moment, thank you very much, Sophie and Jenny.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You've been listening to the New Statesman's History Podcast, Hidden Histories, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by India Burke. Our music is Jean-Baptiste Lully's Gavotte, performed by Thrax, and is licensed under Creative Commons. For more information about the writers and works discussed in this programme, visit newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 